Greetings and welcome to the Logical Belief Ministries podcast. I'm your host, Jason Mollett. Uh, you can visit our website at logicalbelief.org. Uh, you can watch these podcasts on YouTube. You can search for and subscribe to our channel there. Uh, you can also find us on iTunes. Just search for Logical Belief. Uh, both the audio and video can be found at our website. Uh, just right there on the far right of the top menu. Just go ahead and click on Podcast. Um, if you want to send me a word of encouragement or you have a question uh, that you want to have answered on the air, uh, you can drop me an email at jason at logicalbelief.org. Uh, by sending me an email, however, you are permitting me to read it on the air. So just want to make sure that you are aware of that. Um, if you do have any complaints or do feel the need uh, to send me any sort of hate mail, um, or you just want to note uh, what an amazing smile I have, uh, you can send all those messages to joel at joelosteen.com. All righty. Well, um, today uh, we're going to have uh, kind of a variety of uh, topics uh, we're going to discuss. Um, we have been discussing uh, over the last several episodes, uh, we've been discussing the uh, cult of the Jehovah's Witnesses, um, but today we're going to kind of go a little bit a different direction. Uh, the first thing I want to uh, discuss is um, <clears throat> uh, is a I received an email actually from a friend of mine, and I think this is something that he wanted me to do on the air. Uh, and I actually had a personal conversation with him, but uh, I I thought that this um, might be something that would be interesting uh, to. Uh, address uh, on the podcast. So I'll just go ahead and read his email. This is Carl uh, from Indiana. Um, he wrote, uh, I have the opportunity to sit in on a seminar presented by one of the few sanctioned Catholic ministers who perform exorcisms. That would probably be a Catholic priest. Uh, what is logical beliefs view on demonic possession? Okay. Well, um, what is our position? Well, there's definitely such a thing as demonic possession, but um, the Bible is quite, quite clear on that. Um, however, um, the issue that I would have with um, this question um, really has uh, less to do about demonic possession, but has to do with uh, the Roman Catholic Church and attending a seminar put on by a Roman Catholic Church priest who is um, meant to be, I guess, some sort of authority on uh, exorcism. So <clears throat> the first thing I would say is, um, why would we as a Christian uh, want to um, attend a seminar put on by a Roman Catholic? Um, there's, there's, there's some things that we have to recognize as Christians. If I firmly believe that the Bible teaches that we are saved by God's grace alone through faith and we are justified by faith. And if any of you have done any sort of research on the Roman Catholic Church, um, you're going to have to at some point recognize um, that the Reformation happened for a reason. And 
that uh, they have not recanted their teaching um, on these particular uh, issues, especially justification by faith. And if if we as Christians um, who are saved by God's grace love the gospel uh, and and believe that our peace with God and our standing with God is based upon justification by faith, Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. If we believe that, if we believe Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9, um, therefore it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Um, if, if we truly and sincerely believe this, uh, then... Um, then we should not be supporting a pseudo-Christian organization like the Roman Catholic Church um, who uh, would would claim that that belief um, makes us anathema. And we'll talk about that. The word anathema is a uh, term that is, is a New Testament Greek word, which means to be uh, cursed, means to be accursed, uh, means to be cut off permanently, from God and uh, the Roman Catholic Church in the councils of Trent in the 16th century uh, and the Roman Catholic Church has not recanted this um, holds that um, those who believe in justification by faith alone um, are anathema they are cursed under the curse of God and um, I'll actually just go ahead and read you um, the Canon 9 of the Councils of Trent. It says here, um, If anyone saith that by faith alone the impious is justified in such wise as to mean that nothing else is required to cooperate, uh, if that isn't a synergistic term, I don't know what is, uh, required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, that it is not in any way necessary that he be prepared and disposed by the movement of his own will. Let him be anathema. Okay, well, let's see what Scripture says. In uh, Romans chapter 3, verse 20, it says, Therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. And... Uh, in Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Uh, Romans 3.28, therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. This is what scripture says. Um, in Canon 12, it says, if anyone shall say, this is a, once again the Canon 12 of the Councils of Trent, um, which is still the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic Church has never recanted this teaching. Uh, if anyone shall say that justifying faith is nothing else than confidence in the divine mercy pardoning sins for Christ's sake, or that, or that it is that confidence alone by which we are justified, let him be accursed. Um, I also, let's see here. Um, okay, here we go. Canon 24 says, 
If anyone saith that the justice received is not preserved and also increased before God through good works, but that the said works are merely the fruits and signs of justification obtained, but not a cause of the increase thereof, let him be anathema. So a question that I often have when I witness to Roman Catholics and I give them the gospel, and if they tell me that they believe that justification is by faith alone, and they affirm that biblical truth, the question I have for them, and I've asked Roman Catholics, is, well then, why do you attend a church that tells you that you're going to hell for believing this? Um, you know, it's it's a question that must be asked. So, the question I would have, um, if if somebody wants to go to um, a seminar put on by a Catholic priest on exorcism, the question I would have is, why would we want to do that if if they are affirming something other than the gospel that's preached by the apostles and Jesus Christ himself? Why would we want to affirm that in any way by, by giving them some sort of credence uh, and validation by uh, by attending something like that? So, um, the other issue that I would say is is that um, a Roman Catholic priest <clears throat> believes that he is he is um, offering every time he does the mass that he is reoffering a propitiatory sacrifice of the flesh and blood of Christ, reoffering it. Uh, for all those in attendance um, at the Mass. And um, uh, Scripture um, explicitly uh, teaches against this. Um, in Hebrews 9.28, it says, So Christ, um, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. And also one of my favorite verses in Scripture, Hebrews ten fourteen, for by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So by a single offering, the the act of Christ on the cross, we have been perfected for all time. We don't need a continual sacrifice um, uh, to perfect us. It also says in Hebrews 10, verses 10 through 12, it says, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. There it is again. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifice, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. So the writer of Hebrews here doesn't have any idea of this continual necessity for a propitiatory sacrifice um, that is, is needed. Um, the writer of Hebrews is very explicit. The action of Christ on the cross was sufficient um, 
for the salvation of his people and that a continual sacrifice is not necessary. So the Mass in itself is a blasphemy against that offering of Christ. And um, so, so we have a church that anathematizes salvation by grace alone through faith alone, anathematizes this, and also performs a ritualistic sacrifice that is supposed to be propitiatory, um, in fact, it does say, actually, um, in the Catholic Catechism, let's find it here. Um, page 1367, it says, this sacrifice is truly propitiatory, and it's re in referencing the, the Mass, um, that it removes the wrath of God. That's what propitiatory means. Um, so... This takes away from the finished work of Christ. <clears throat> and so uh, this, sh this should be something that we, we definitely have a concern about. Um, the, the one thing that I would also want to bring up um, in reference to um, taking a seminar from a Roman Catholic priest on the issue of um, demonic exorcism is... It, to me, it would be similar to taking a um, a seminar from the Jewish exorcists um, in Acts 19. I'm just going to go ahead and read this passage in the Sons of Sceva. Um, in Acts 19, uh, beginning at verse 11, I'm going to read down to verse 20. I'll be reading here from the ESV. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and diseases left them and evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. So we had these traveling, these itinerant uh, Jewish exorcists who this was obviously something that they did uh, on a regular basis, uh, found that, wow, I mean, we can have more success here by invoking the name of Jesus. So I, I don't deny that non-Christians in invoking the name of Christ, um, the, the name of Jesus is, is powerful. There's, you know, there's no name given uh, under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. His, his name is a powerful name. He is the creator of all things. And so, um, can Christ's name, um, uh, is it powerful enough that, you know, can, can unbelievers in invoking it, can they, can they cast out demons? Um, well, uh, yeah, I think so. But, um, uh, it was obviously successful, at least to some level here for these, uh, men, uh, these itinerant Jewish exorcist but then we also see what can happen uh, to those who are are not true believers and are using the name of Christ um, in the act of exorcism so in verse 14 it says seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this and it says uh, but the evil spirit answered them 
Jesus I know and Paul I recognize but who are you and the man in whom the evil spirit was uh, the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them mastered all of them and it overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded and this became known to all the residents of Ephesus both Jews and Greeks and fear fell upon them all and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled um, so we see here that um, this wasn't <laughs> this wasn't successful in this case um, it didn't work out for them so what what I would say is that if if there is a person who genuinely um, desires and is, is telling us that they desire to repent and they desire to put their faith and trust in Christ, they want to become a Christian, and let's say they do uh, struggle with demonic possession. It's in those situations that I believe we as Christians uh, should and, and can, um, in those type of situations, uh, uh, in the name of Christ, uh, pray for and demand the evil spirit to leave that person. Um, however, I think even as Christians, we need to be somewhat careful with this. Um, and I would reference uh, the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, uh, verse 43. And uh, this also exists in uh, uh, Luke chapter 11, verses 24 through 26 is the uh, synoptic equivalent it's almost word for word of what's in Matthew it says in verse 43 here it says when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person this is Jesus speaking here uh, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none then it says I will return to my house from which I came and when it comes and it finds the house empty swept and put in order then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there the last state of that person is worse than the first so this is why we should be careful um, with um, just engaging in in some sort of exorcist type exercise if uh, we have a belief that someone is struggling with a demonic spirit um, we should only do that if the person has a desire uh, to to actually become a Christian if uh, they don't uh, give any sort of um, they don't seem to demonstrate any sort of desire for uh, becoming a Christian I don't think that we should we should do anything um, as a Christian because that person will be in a worse state uh, the last state of that person is worse than the first and uh, I've, I've actually often even heard of that uh, sort of a thing that those that struggle with demonic possession that you know were part of some sort of exorcism uh, if they didn't become a Christian um, often that was not the end of the oppression and the possession um, and, and in some cases it is even worse so uh, I think we need to be careful um, of that. If if somebody desires to be a Christian and um, and we would tell.
compel a demonic spirit to leave a person in the name of Jesus Christ, and that person becomes indwelt and filled with the Holy Spirit, a house divided against itself cannot stand. A the the temple of God indwelt by the Holy Spirit cannot at the same time be indwelt by a a demonic spirit. That is not possible. So for a person that that repents and believes the gospel and becomes filled with the Spirit of God, um, they will not uh, struggle with demonic possession. Uh, no Christian will struggle with uh, demonic possession. Alrighty, for those of you that drove off the road through a hedge of uh, bushes, um, sorry about that, uh, but uh, we are going to transition uh, now to um, another topic that I want to uh, address, and let me actually prepare this here. I'm going to switch the screen here so we can take a look at this article. Uh, this is an article that um, I wrote a while ago, and this recently, um, let me switch focus here, let's pull in here. Um, I recently had a discussion with um, another Christian about this topic, and I thought it would be something that I think would be good to address um, on the podcast itself. Um, so let me... Let's close that. I don't know why we had that open. Let's uh, make sure everybody can see this. Try zooming in there a little bit more. Alrighty. Okay, so the, the next thing we're going to talk about here is uh, something that I call the philosophical naturalism hermeneutic. You're going to go, what? <laughs> What's that? <laughs> So uh, let's go ahead and define our terms here so um, we can uh, know what I'm actually talking about here. Um, one thing that is a, a big issue among the um, evangelical Christians today is a denial of biblical creation. Now, I'm unapologetically a young earth creationist and that's because well that's what I believe the Bible teaches I think it's uh, fairly clear um, on that now have I always been a young earth creationist no um, I have not um, I've I've had my struggles with that and uh, by God's grace um, I have come to uh, recognize the issues and um, and to see this more clearly, but um, the reason that I going, going back here to the philosophical naturalism hermeneutic is the reason I call it this is because uh, fundamentally what we have to understand is that when somebody um, is interpreting scripture through the lens of 
modern scientific claims, uh, they are what they are doing is they are accepting conclusions to evolutionary type arguments that begin with a premise that there is no God. And I'm going to, to kind of lay this out. So the reason I call it philosophical is it's um, uh, philosophy itself is the study of the fundamental nature of knowledge, reality, and existence. And naturalism is a particular worldview that assumes that uh, supernatural or spiritual explanations cannot be permitted um, or must be excluded. Uh, so, so basically, atheism, for example, is a naturalistic worldview. Um, agnosticism, a naturalistic worldview. So, naturalism is an assumption that says that everything arises from natural properties and causes, and supernatural spiritual exclamation explanations are excluded or discounted. And a hermeneutic um, is a method or theory of interpreting the Bible. So. The reason I call it the philosophical naturalism hermeneutic, or you just call it the naturalism hermeneutic, is because is because professing Christians are taking these conclusions, naturalistic, uh, evolutionary naturalistic conclusions, and they are using these as a lens by which to interpret the Bible. Um, one thing that I note here um, in this article is I said that atheism's foundation is a circular argument. Uh, it begins with a naturalistic assumption, which once again, we have to remember, naturalism is the assumption that supernatural causation is not permitted. Evidence then, like starlight, geological layers, radiometric dating, whatever, are then interpreted with this assumption. The interpretation is then used to say there is no God. However, this conclusion is begging the question because the argument began with the assumption that there is no God. The argument assumes naturalism. And I'll, ex I'll kind of explain it this way. Let's, let's, um, let's kind of break this down. Um, let's say that, uh, I'm going to switch screens here. Maybe this one here will work a little better. Those of you, here, let's try that. Um, let, I like to use this example. Um, if, uh, for example, let's say uh, Adam, maybe, you know, 10 days after um, his creation, um, sawed a tree down, cut it down. And let's say that there was rings on the tree, and he had some sort of knowledge that, you know, well, you know, there's... On average, about one ring uh, or so produced annually. And he counts the rings of the tree, and he goes, well, there's 120 rings in this tree. God, there's there's no way that you uh, simply created this tree about, you know, what, 12 days ago or 13 days ago? There's no way that you could have done that. I mean, this, this tree here is obviously has has 120 rings in it. Um, however, what Adam is doing here is he's assuming, in this case, naturalism. He's not accepting the claim that God has made saying that he created the world 13 days ago or he, 
um, it will actually be 10 days, it will be 17 days ago, um, or 16 days ago, but he is simply assuming this particular evidence and running it backwards. The same way somebody could have seen Adam, um, and you could assume, you know, if you, you had a, a picture of Adam, you know, 10 days after his creation, somebody go, well, he, you know, he looks like about, it, you know, a 20-year-old man. Um, there's no way that he's only 10 days old. Well, once again, that that conclusion is the result of a naturalistic assumption. So God created the universe very clearly in Genesis chapter 1. He created it mature. It wasn't a progressive creation. Um, he created it fully mature. And so all arguments have to assume naturalistic causation. And and it's a denial of the supernatural causation, which Scripture is very explicitly clear on. And I actually I want to read something to you from um, Exodus chapter 20. And Exodus chapter 20 is the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. And in uh, verse 8, this is the fourth commandment, it says, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it, you shall not do any work. I'll jump down just a little bit. Still here in the fourth commandment. For in six days, the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Okay, according to um, the book of Exodus here, is God wrote this in stone. And he gave it to Moses. So God wrote in stone here that he created the, the universe in six days. And he rested on the seventh. And, and he uses this to give a reason to the Jews for why they should rest every seventh day. Now, if God progressively created over six um large eons of time, billions of years, um, and then, I guess, rested for billions of years, then what he's telling the Jews here is that they should work for billions of years before they can finally rest. No, it's quite clear. Um, I think God, I, I believe God spoke, has spoken all time to his people um, in such a way that they can always understand. I don't think that the Jews, when they read his writing on the st in stone, they believed that um, that God created this universe over billions of years. Uh, they they were quite I'm I'm sure had had no doubt in their mind um, that that God had created the universe exactly as He says that He did here. And it isn't until modern times till we start importing naturalistic assumptions into our interpretation of Scripture that we come up with this um, this ludicrous idea that God uh, used some form of theistic evolution um, in order to um, uh, create uh, the universe. Um, so the the first problem I note here 
uh, that I that I really have with the philosophical naturalism hermeneutic is that it's it's really an act of um, uh, blasphemy. It's it's taking God's name in vain, uh, and my argument for that is is if a Christian accepts the conclusion to a naturalistic argument and then uses this to interpret Scripture, one of the premises and the primary premise of a naturalistic argument is there is no God. That's one of the premises. So if a Christian accepts the conclusion to an argument that has as one of its premises, there is no God, then he's affirming that that premise must be true. But how can he? He's a Christian. He, he, by necessity, must believe there is a God. So, um, so I note here, it says, this means the professing Christian is attempting, accepting true the premise, there is no God. This is blasphemy. The third commandment in Exodus 20, verse 7 says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. This is a serious offense against God and failing in what Jesus calls the first and greatest commandment, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Um, I, you know, I believe this is a serious issue. Um, the second issue with the philosophical naturalism hermeneutic is that it's questioning the word of God. Um, it's really going back to in Genesis 3, verse 1, when Satan came to Eve, his question to the woman was, did God really say? And so, um, old earth creationists and theistic evolutions um, are really saying, well, you know, did God really say? Um, did he really say that he, you know, created it in six days? Um in Matthew 19, verse 4, uh, Jesus here was speaking to the Pharisees, and he said, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator uh, made them male and female? Jesus was acknowledging here that at the beginning of creation was when the Creator made them male and female. He didn't make them male and female uh, 13.6 billion years after the creation of the universe. Um, there's actually another text I wanted to point out. Oh, yeah, uh, John uh, 5, verse 46. Uh, Jesus said, For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Um, here's the thing. Moses wrote Genesis. Moses wrote Exodus. And so Jesus is saying that if you believed Moses, you would believe me. Now, if we're going to say that we're going to use a philosophical naturalism hermeneutic to interpret Genesis and say that, well, you know, we can't really take what Moses said literally. You know, I would encourage you to really challenge yourself with that. Jesus said that um, um, if you believed Moses, you would uh, believe me. And so uh, Jesus holds us accountable 
to the words of Moses um, as his own words. And that is because all of Scripture is theunustas or um, breathed out by God, all Scripture. Um, 1 Timothy 3.16. The third issue with the philosophical naturalism hermeneutic is that it is a serious theological, has serious theological and soteriological implications. And if the earth and universe are indeed millions and billions of years old, this would by necessity place death, disease, and destruction before the sin of, sin of Adam. Um, Genesis chapter 3 is, is very clear, and Romans chapter 5 is very clear, that death, disease, and destruction are the result of Adam's sin. Not, not something that was prior to Adam and was even used to bring about his existence. I mean, because that's what evolution really teaches. It teaches survival of the fittest, the unfit have to die um, in order to bring about um, more fit um, uh, races or, or creatures. And so death is the hero in the evolutionary uh, worldview. And so if we accept evolution, then death is really what brought about Adam. That's how we, we got to Adam. But according to the Bible, it's completely the other way around. Is that Adam's sin is the cause and the, and the reason uh, for there being death, disease, and destruction in this world and for evil to exist. The result of Adam's sin. Um, the other thing in Genesis 1, verse 31, God actually said after he had made all things, he said it was very good. So the question I would have for the theistic or um, old earth creationists is that if, if God said it was very good, what does that say about God? If a universe in decay with disease, uh, death, and destruction is good, according to God, then what reason should we have for trusting God when he says that the the new heavens and the new earth will be good? I mean, will the new heavens and the new earth contain death, disease, and destruction? You know, I mean, it's, it's honestly a good question to ask. Um, you know, I'd like to hear an answer to that. Um, what sort of confidence um, can you um, can you really have um, in in God if He would call death good? Um, I think that um, this also diminishes the seriousness of sin, because if sin is the cause and the reason for death and destruction, then sin is what needs to be resolved. But if death existed before sin, then sin's more of a minor issue that, you know, probably should be fixed, but um, is not the ultimate cause uh, for the situation this world is in. Um, so it's uh, it's definitely some things to think about. So, um, well... That is um, 
that is all we are going to have for this particular episode. Um, I uh, thank you guys for uh, joining us today. And um, if you have any uh, questions or if you have any comments uh, on this particular episode, go ahead and drop me an email. Um, I just hope that this was of some benefit uh, to you. And uh, God willing, um, we will uh, join you again um, next week. And uh, we'll hope to see you then. God bless. i uh-huh.